Chapter 10 Conditions of Being Saved What Must I Do to Be Saved? Acts 16.30 I bring forward this subject today not because it is new to many who are reading this, but because it is greatly needed. I am happy to know that the great question of our text is beginning to be deeply and extensively asked in this community, and under these circumstances, it is the first duty of a Christian pastor to answer it fully and plainly. The circumstances that gave occasion to the words of the text were these. Paul and Silas had gone to Philippi to preach the gospel. Their preaching stirred up much opposition and outcry. They were arrested and thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to keep them safely. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises. God came down. The earth quaked and the prison was shaken. Its doors burst open and the prisoners' chains fell off. The jailer jumped up afraid. Supposing that his prisoners had fled, he was about to take his own life when Paul cried out, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Acts 16.28 The jailer then called for a light. He rushed in trembling, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is briefly the context of our text. I will develop it now by showing what sinners must not do to be saved and what they must do to be saved. Roman numeral 1. What sinners must not do to be saved. It has now come to be necessary and very important to tell people what they must not do in order to be saved. When the gospel was first preached, it seems Satan had not introduced as many delusions to mislead people as he has now. It was then enough to give, as Paul did, the simple and direct answer, telling people only what they must at once do. This does not seem to be enough now, though. So many delusions and corruptions have confused and darkened the minds of men that they often need a great deal of instruction to lead them back to those simple views of the subject that prevailed at first. This is why it is important to show sinners what they must not do if they intend to be saved. 1. You must not imagine that you have nothing to do. In Paul's time, nobody seems to have thought of this. The doctrine of universalism was not much developed then. People had not begun to dream that they could be saved without doing anything. They had not learned that sinners have nothing to do to be saved. If this idea, so current of late, had been popular at Philippi, the question of our text would not have been asked. No trembling sinner would have cried out, What must I do to be saved? If people imagine that they have nothing to do, they are never likely to be saved. 
It is not in the nature of falsehood and lies to save people's souls, and certainly nothing is more false than this idea. People know they have something to do to be saved. Why, then, do they pretend that all people will be saved, whether they do their duty or whether they constantly refuse to do it? The very idea is absurd and it is supported only by the most evident insult upon common sense and an enlightened conscience. 2. You should not mistake what you have to do. The duty required of sinners is very simple, and it would be easily understood if it were not for the false ideas that prevail as to what true religion is and as to the exact things that God requires as conditions of salvation. False opinions prevail on these points to a most alarming extent. Because of this, there is much danger of mistake. Beware that you are not deceived in a matter of such importance. 3. Do not say or imagine that you cannot do what God requires. On the contrary, always assume that you can. If you assume that you cannot, this very assumption will be fatal to your salvation. 4. Do not procrastinate. If you ever intend or hope to be saved, you must set your face like a flint against this most damaging delusion. Probably no other method of evading one's present duty has ever prevailed as extensively as this, or has destroyed so many souls. Almost all people in gospel lands intend to prepare for death. They intend to repent and become religious before they die. Even universalists expect to become religious at some time, maybe after death, or maybe after being purified from their sins by purgatorial fires. But somehow they expect to become holy, for they know that they must do so before they can see God and enjoy His presence. You will notice, though, that they put off this matter of becoming holy to the most distant time possible. Having a strong dislike to it now, they flatter themselves that God will take care of this properly in the next world, no matter how much they oppose His efforts to do so in this world. As long as it remains in their power to choose whether to become holy or not, they use the time to enjoy sin, leaving it up to God to make them holy in the next world, if they can't prevent it there. Consistency is a jewel. All those who put off being religious now, in the fond hope of becoming so in some future time, whether in this world or in the next, are acting out of this same inconsistency. You fondly hope that what you are striving now to prevent will occur. In this way, sinners by multitudes press their way down to hell under this delusion. 
They often, when confronted with the claims of God, will even name the time when they will repent. It may be very near, maybe as soon as they get home from the meeting, or as soon as the sermon is over, or it may be much later, as, for example, when they have finished their education, or have become settled in life, or have made a little more money, or after they abandon some business of questionable morality. But no matter whether the set time is near or far away, the delusion is fatal. The thought of procrastination is murder to the soul. Such sinners are not very aware that Satan himself has poured out his spirit upon them and is leading them wherever he desires. He does not care whether they put off God for a longer time or a shorter time. If he can persuade them to a long delay, he likes it well. If only to a short one, he feels quite sure he can renew the delay and get another extension. So it serves his purpose fully in the end. Now observe, sinner, that if you ever want to be saved, you must resist and grieve away this spirit of Satan. You must cease to procrastinate. You can never be converted as long as you operate only in the way of delaying and promising yourself that you will seek God at some future time. Did you ever accomplish anything in your worldly business by procrastination? Did procrastination ever begin, perform, and accomplish any important business? Suppose you have some business of much consequence that involves your character, your possessions, or your life to be transacted in a certain city, but you do not know exactly how soon it must be done. It may be done with safety now and with greater ease and success now than it ever can be later, but it might possibly still be done even though you would delay a little time. However, every moment's delay involves an absolute uncertainty of your being able to do it at all. You do not know if even a single hour's delay will make you too late. In these circumstances, what would a person of sense and discretion do? Would he not be awake and get ready in an instant? Would he continue to sleep when a matter of such importance is at stake, involved in such risks and uncertainties? No. You know that the risk of a thousand dollars, depending on such conditions, would stir the warm blood of any man of business and you could not tempt him to delay an hour. Oh, he would say, this is the important business to which I must attend, and everything else must be pushed aside. Suppose he would act as a sinner does about repentance, and promise himself that tomorrow will be as this day and will be much more abundant, and so would do nothing today, or tomorrow, or the next month, or the next year. Would you not think that he is out of his mind? Would you expect his business to be done, his money to be secured, and his interests to be furthered by this delay? In the same way, the sinner accomplishes nothing but his own ruin as long as he procrastinates. 
Until he says, the time is now, I will do all my duty today, he is only playing the fool and laying up his wages accordingly. It is infinite madness to defer a matter of such great importance and of such perilous uncertainty. 5. If you want to be saved, you must not wait for God to do what He commands you to do. God will certainly do all that He can for your salvation. All that the nature of the case allows for Him to do, He either has done or stands ready to do as soon as your position and course will allow Him to do it. Long before you were born, He anticipated your needs as a sinner, and He began on the most generous scale to make provision for them. He gave His Son to die for you, doing all that needed to be done by way of an atonement. Long ago, He began shaping His providence so as to give you the needed knowledge of duty. He has sent you His Word and Spirit. Indeed, He has given you the highest possible evidence that He will be active and prompt on His part, as one who is in earnest for your salvation. You know this. What sinner fears that God would be negligent on his part in the matter of his salvation? Not one. Many of you are even annoyed that God would urge you so earnestly and would be so energetic in the work of securing your salvation. Can you now quiet your conscience with the excuse of waiting for God to do your duty? The fact is that there are things for you to do that God cannot do for you. Those things that He has ordered and revealed as the conditions of your salvation, He cannot and will not do Himself. If He could have done them Himself, He would not have asked you to do them. Every sinner should consider this. God requires repentance and faith of you because it is naturally impossible that anyone else except you should do them. They are your own personal matters, the voluntary exercises of your own mind, and no other being in heaven, earth, or hell can do these things for you in your place. As far as substitution was naturally possible, God has introduced it, as in the case of the atonement. He has never hesitated to march up to meet and to bear all the self-denials that the work of salvation has involved. 6. If you intend to be saved, you must not wait for God to do anything whatsoever. There is nothing to be waited for. God has either done all on His part already, or if anything more remains, He is ready and waiting this moment for you to do your duty so that He may impart all necessary grace. 7. Do not flee to any refuge of lies. Lies cannot save you. 
It is truth, not lies, that alone can save. I have often wondered how people could think that universalism or any other lie could save anyone. People must be sanctified by the truth. There is no plainer teaching in the Bible than this, and no Bible doctrine is better sustained by reason and the nature of the case. Does universalism sanctify anybody? Universalists say you must be punished for your sins, and that they will be put away because of this, as if the fires of purgatory would thoroughly consume all sin and bring out the sinner pure. Is this being sanctified by the truth? You might as well hope to be saved by eating liquid fire. You might as well expect fire to purify your soul from sin in this world as in the next. Why not? It is amazing that people would hope to be sanctified and saved by this great error, or indeed by any error whatsoever. God says you must be sanctified by the truth, John 17, 17. Even if you could believe this delusion, would it make you holy? Do you believe that it would make you humble, heavenly-minded, sin-hating, and benevolent? Can you believe any such thing? Be assured that Satan is only the father of lies, John 8:44 and he cannot save you in fact he would not save you even if he could his lies are not intended to save you but to destroy your very soul and nothing could be more adapted to its purpose lies are only the natural poison of the soul you take them at your peril 8. Don't seek for any self-indulgent method of salvation. The great effort among sinners has always been to be saved in some way of self-indulgence. They are slow to admit that self-denial is indispensable and that total, unqualified self-denial is the condition of being saved. I warn you against supposing that you can be saved in some easy, self-pleasing way. People should know and always assume that it is naturally imperative for selfishness to be completely put away and its demands resisted and put down. I often ask, does the system of salvation that I preach so well harmonize with the intuitions of my reason that I know from within myself that this gospel is the thing I need? Does it in all its parts and relations meet the demands of my intelligence? Are its demands obviously just and right? Do its specified conditions of salvation obviously satisfy man's moral position before God and his moral relations to the government of God? To these and similar questions, I am constrained to answer in the affirmative. 
the longer I live, the more fully I see that the gospel system is the only one that can both meet the demands of the human intelligence and supply the needs of man's sinning, depraved heart. The duties required of the sinner are just those things that I know must in the nature of the case be the conditions of salvation. Why then should any sinner think of being saved on any other conditions? Why desire it even if it were possible? 9. Don't imagine that you will ever have a more favorable time. Unrepentant sinners are inclined to think that right now is by no means as convenient a time as may be expected later, so they put it off in hope of a better time. They think that they might later have more conviction, fewer obstacles, and fewer hindrances. That is what Felix thought. He did not intend to neglect salvation any more than you do but he was very busy just then. He had certain matters to be handled that seemed especially urgent, and so he asked to be excused on the promise of very faithful attention to the subject at the expected convenient season. But did the convenient season ever come? Never. Nor does it ever come to those who in a similar manner resist God's solemn call and grieve away His Spirit. Thousands are now waiting in the agonies of hell who said just as Felix did, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Acts 24.25 O oh, sinner, when will your convenient season come? Are you aware that no time will ever be convenient for you unless God calls your attention earnestly and solemnly to the subject? Can you expect Him to do this at the time of your choice when you disregard His call at the time of His choice? Have you not heard him say what is written in his word about this? Because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Proverbs 1, 24-28 O sinner! That will be a fearful and a final fate, and the innumerable voices of God's universe will say, Amen. 10. Do not suppose that you will find another time as good, and one in which you can just as well repent as now. 
Many people are ready to suppose that although there may not be a better time for themselves, there will at least be one just as good. That is a vain delusion. Sinner, you already owe 10,000 talents, Matthew 18.24. And will you find it just as easy to be forgiven of this debt while you are showing that you don't care how much and how long you add to it? In a case like this, where everything depends upon your securing the goodwill of your creditor, do you hope to gain his goodwill by positively insulting him to his face? Take another view of the case. You know that your heart must one day give up sin, or you are forever damned. You know also that each successive sin increases the hardness of your heart and makes it a more difficult matter to repent. How then can you reasonably hope that a future time will be equally favorable for your repentance? When you have hardened your neck like an iron muscle and made your heart like an immovable stone, can you hope that repentance will still be as easy to you as ever? You know, sinner, that God requires you to leave your sins now. But you look up into his face and say to him, Lord, it is just as good if I stop wronging you at some future convenient time. Lord, if I can only be saved later, I will think it is all to my benefit to go on insulting and wronging you as long as I possibly can. Since you are so very compassionate and patient, I think I may still continue on in sin and rebellion against you for many more months and years. Lord, don't hurry me. Let me have my way. Let me offend you, if you please, and spit in your face. All will be just as well if I only repent in time so as to be saved in the end. I know indeed that you are pleading with me to repent now, but I much prefer to wait longer, and it will be just as good to repent at some later time. Do you suppose that God will approve of this? That he will say, You are right, sinner. I set my seal of approval upon your plan. It is good that you take such proper views of your duty to your Maker and your Father. Proceed as planned. Your course of action will ensure your salvation. Do you expect such a response from God as this? 11. If you ever expect to be saved, do not wait to see what others will do or say. I was recently astounded to find that a young lady here under conviction of sin was greatly bothered about what a beloved brother would think of her if she would give her heart to God. She knew what she needed to do, but he was unrepentant, and she did not know what he would think if she would repent now. It amounts to this. She would come before God and say, Oh, great God, I know I should repent, but I can't because I don't know if my brother will like it. 
I know that he too is a sinner and must repent or lose his soul. But I am much more afraid of his displeasure than I am of yours, and I care more for his approval than I do for yours. Because of this, I dare not repent until he does. How shocking this is! It is strange that on such a subject people will always ask, What will others say about me? Are you answerable to God? What then do others have to say about your duty to Him? God requires you and them also to repent. So why don't you do it at once? Not long ago, as I was preaching abroad, one of the leading men of the city came to the meeting for those seeking God, apparently much convicted and in great distress for his soul. But being a man of high political standing and supposing himself to be very dependent upon his friends, he insisted that he must consult them and have a regard for their feelings in this matter. I could not possibly convince him otherwise, although I spent three hours in the effort. He seemed almost ready to repent. I thought he certainly would, but he slipped away, relapsed by a perpetual backsliding. I expect he will be found at last among the lost in the lake of fire. Would you not expect such a result if he tore himself away under such an excuse as that? O oh, sinner, you must not care what others say of you. Let them say what they please. Remember, the question is between your own soul and God. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. Proverbs 9.12 You must die for yourself, and you must appear before God in judgment for yourself. Go, young woman, and ask your brother, Can you answer for me when I come to the judgment? Can you pledge yourself that you can stand in my place and answer for me there? Until you have reason to believe that he can, it is wise for you to disregard his opinions if they stand at all in your way. If anyone steps in and offers any objection to your immediate repentance, do not fail to ask him, Can you shield my soul in the judgment? If I can be assured that you can and will, I will make you my Savior. But if not, then I must attend to my own salvation and leave you to attend to yours. I will never forget the scene that occurred while my own mind was pondering this important point. Seeking a secluded place for prayer, I went into a deep grove, found a perfectly secluded spot behind some large logs, and knelt down. All of a sudden, a leaf rustled, and I jumped up. I thought that somebody must be coming, and I would be seen praying there. I had not been aware that I cared about what others said about me, but looking back upon my exercises of mind there, 
I could see that I did care infinitely too much what others thought of me. Closing my eyes again for prayer, I heard a rustling leaf again, and then the thought came over me like a wave of the sea. I am ashamed of confessing my sin. I thought, what? Ashamed of being found speaking with God? Oh, how ashamed I felt of this shame. I can never describe the strong and overpowering impression that this thought made on my mind. I cried aloud at the top of my voice, for I felt that even if all the people on earth and all the devils in hell were present to hear and see me, I would not retreat and would not cease to cry unto God, for what does it matter to me if others see me seeking the face of my God and Savior? I am hastening to the judgment. I will not be ashamed to have the judge as my friend there. I will not be ashamed there to have sought his face and his pardon here. There will be no turning away from the gaze of the universe. If sinners at the judgment could get away, how gladly they would, but they cannot. Nor can they stand there in each other's places to answer for each other's sins. That young woman, can she then say, Oh, my brother, you must answer for me, for I rejected Christ and lost my soul to please you. That brother is himself a guilty rebel, cursed, anguished, and trembling before the fearsome judge, and how can he assist you in such a dreadful hour? Do not fear his displeasure now, but rather warn him while you can to escape for his life before the wrath of the Lord grows fierce against him and there is no remedy. 2 Chronicles 36.16 12. If you would be saved, you must not entertain animosity against God, His ministers, Christians, or against anything Christian. There are some people of a particular temperament who are in much danger of losing their souls because they are tempted to strong prejudices. Once committed either in favor of or against any persons or things, they are exceedingly inclined to become so rigid as never more to be really honest. When these people or things in regard to which they become committed are so connected with Christianity, that their prejudices stand aligned against their fulfilling the great conditions of salvation, the effect can be nothing else than disastrous. It is naturally imperative to salvation that you should be entirely honest. Your soul must act before God in the open sincerity of truth, or you cannot be converted. I have known people in revivals to remain under great conviction for a long time without submitting themselves to God. 
By careful inquiry, I have found them completely hedged in by their prejudices, and yet so blind to this fact that they would not admit that they had any prejudice at all. In my observation of convicted sinners, I have found this to be among the most common obstacles in the way of the salvation of souls. People become committed against Christianity, and remaining in this state, it is naturally impossible that they would repent. God will not indulge your prejudices or lower his prescribed conditions of salvation to accommodate your feelings. You must give up all hostile feelings in cases where you have really been hurt. Sometimes I have seen people evidently shut out from the kingdom of heaven because, having been really hurt, they would not forgive or forget, but maintained such a spirit of resistance and revenge that they could not, in the nature of the case, repent of the sin toward God, nor could God forgive them. Of course, they lost heaven. I have heard people say, I cannot forgive, I will not forgive, I have been hurt, and I will never forgive that wrong. Notice that you must not hold on to such feelings. If you do, you cannot be saved. Also, you must not allow yourself to fall because of the prejudices of others. I have often been struck with the state of things in families in which the parents or older members of the family had prejudices against the minister, and I have wondered why those parents were not more wise than to lay stumbling blocks before their children to ruin their souls. This is often the true reason why children are not converted. Their minds are turned against the gospel by being turned against those from whom they hear it preached. I would rather have people come into my family and curse and swear before my children than to have them speak against those who preach the true gospel to them. Therefore, I say to all parents, be careful what you say if you do not want to shut the gate of heaven against your children. For another thing, do not allow yourself to take some inflexible position and then allow the stand you have taken to prevent you from doing any obvious duty. People sometimes allow themselves to be committed against taking what is called the anxious seat. Consequently, they refuse to go forward under circumstances when it is obviously proper that they should, and where their refusal to do so places them in an unfavorable mindset that could be fatal to their conversion. Let every sinner Beware of this. Do not hold on to anything about which you have any doubt of its lawfulness or uprightness. Cases often occur in which people are not fully satisfied that a certain thing is wrong, yet are not satisfied that it is right. In cases like this, it should not be enough to say, those Christians do so, 
you should have better reasons than this for your course of conduct. If you ever expect to be saved, you must abandon all practices that you even suspect to be wrong. This principle seems to be involved in the passage, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14.23 To do that which you are not certain is right is to allow yourself to tamper with the divine authority, and it cannot fail to break down in your mind that solemn fear of sinning that you must carefully cherish if you would ever be saved. If you want to be saved, do not look at those who profess to be Christians and wait for them to become engaged as they should be in the great work of God. If they are not what they should be, let them alone. Let them bear their own dreadful responsibility. It often happens that convicted sinners compare themselves with professing Christians, and they try to justify themselves for delaying their duty because some professing Christians are delaying theirs. Sinners must not do this if they ever want to be saved. It is very probable that you will always find enough sinful people who claim to be Christians to stumble over into hell if you will allow yourself to do so. On the other hand, Many people who are professing Christians may not be nearly as bad as you suppose, and you must not be so critical as to put the worst constructions upon their conduct. You have other work to do than this. Let them stand or fall to their own master. Romans 14.4 Unless you abandon the practice of looking for flaws in the conduct of professing Christians, it is utterly impossible that you would be saved. Do not depend upon professing Christians, on their prayers or influence in any way. I have known children to depend a long time upon the prayers of their parents, putting those prayers in the place of Jesus Christ, or at least in the place of their own present efforts to do their duty. This approach pleases Satan entirely. He would ask nothing more to make sure of you. Therefore, do not depend on any prayers, not even those of the holiest Christians on earth. The matter of your conversion lies between you and God alone as truly as if you were the only sinner in all the world, or as if there were no other beings in the universe except you and your God. Do not seek for any apology or excuse whatsoever. I dwell upon this and emphasize it because I so often find people resting on some excuse without being aware of it. In conversation with them about their spiritual condition, I see this and point out that they are resting on a certain excuse. Am I, they say? I did not know it. Do not look for stumbling blocks. Sinners, 
sometimes a little uneasy in their ignorance, begin to look around for stumbling blocks for self-vindication. All at once they become wide awake to the faults of professing Christians, as if they had to bear the care of all the churches. The real fact is that they are all busy trying to find something to which they can take offense to so that they can thereby blunt the sharp edge of truth upon their own consciences. This never helps along their own salvation. Do not tempt the patience and kindness of God. If you do, you are in the utmost danger of being abandoned forever. Do not presume that you may continue any longer in your sins and still find the gate of mercy. This presumption has paved the way for the destruction of many souls. Do not despair of salvation and settle down in unbelief, saying, There is no mercy for me. You must not despair in any such sense as to shut yourself out from the kingdom of God. You may well despair of being saved without Christ and without repentance, but you are obligated to believe the gospel. To do this is to believe the glad tidings that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, even the worst, and that him that cometh to him he will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 You have no right to doubt this and act as if there were no truth in it. You must not wait for more conviction. Why do you need any more? You know your sin and you know your present duty. Nothing can be more ridiculous, therefore, than to wait for more conviction. If you did not know that you are a sinner or that you are guilty of sin, there might be some appropriateness in seeking for conviction of the truth on these points. Do not wait for more or for different feelings. Sinners are often saying, I must feel differently before I can come to Christ, or I must have more feeling, as if this were the great thing that God requires of them. They are completely mistaken in this. Do not wait to be better prepared. While you wait, you are growing worse and worse, and you are quickly rendering your salvation impossible. Don't wait for God to change your heart. Why would you wait for Him to do what He has commanded you to do and waits for you to do in obedience to His command? Don't try to recommend yourself to God by prayers or tears or by anything else whatsoever. Do you think that your prayers place God under any obligation to forgive you? Suppose you owed someone a million dollars and you would go a hundred times a week and beg him to cancel this debt. Then you would enter your prayers in your ledger as payment to him. Suppose you should pursue this course until you had canceled the debt according to the records in your ledger. 
Could you hope to prove anything by this course except that you were insane? Yet, sinners seem to think that their many prayers and tears place the Lord under real obligation to them to forgive them. Never rely on anything else whatsoever other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 It is ridiculous for you to hope, as many do, to make some payment by your own sufferings. In my early experience, I did not think that I could be converted at once, but must be burdened for a long time. I said to myself, God will not have compassion on me until I feel worse than I do now. I cannot expect Him to forgive me until I feel a greater agony of soul than this. Even if I could have gone on increasing my sufferings until they equaled the miseries of hell, it could not have changed God. The fact is that God does not ask you to suffer. Your sufferings cannot, in the nature of the case, avail for atonement. Why, therefore, would you attempt to throw aside the system of God's providing and bring in one of your own? There is another view of the case. God demands for you to bow your stubborn will to Him. This is just like the case of a child in the attitude of disobedience who is required to submit, who starts crying and groaning and showing expressions of agony, and might even afflict himself in hope of moving the compassion of his father, but all the time refuses to submit to parental authority. He would be very glad to put his own sufferings in the place of the submission demanded. This is what the sinner is doing. He would gladly put his own sufferings in the place of submission to God and move the compassion of the Lord so much that he would back away from the hard condition of repentance and submission. If you want to be saved, you must not listen at all to those who pity you and who indirectly take your side against God and try to make you think you are not as bad as you are. I once knew a woman who, after a long season of distressing conviction, fell into great despair. Her health sank, and she seemed about to die. All this time she found no relief, but only seemed to grow worse and worse, sinking down in grim and terrible despair. Instead of dealing plainly and faithfully with her and searching her guilty heart to the bottom, her friends had taken the course of pitying her, and they almost complained that the Lord would not have compassion on the poor, agonized, dying woman. Eventually, as she seemed in the last stages of life, being so weak as to hardly be able to speak in a low voice. A minister who better understood how to deal with convicted sinners happened to stop by. 
The woman's friends cautioned him to deal very carefully with her, since she was in a dreadful condition and was greatly to be pitied. But he judged it best to deal with her very faithfully. As he approached her bedside, she raised her faint voice and begged for a little water. He said, Unless you repent, you will soon be where there is not a drop of water to cool your tongue. Oh, she cried, must I go down to hell? Yes, you must, and you will do so soon unless you repent and submit to God. Why don't you repent and submit immediately? Oh, she replied, it is a dreadful thing to go to hell. Yes, and for that very reason, God has provided an atonement through Jesus Christ, but you won't accept it. He brings the cup of salvation to your lips and you push it away. Why will you do this? Why will you persist in being an enemy of God and reject His offered salvation when you could become His friend and have salvation if you wanted to? This was the manner of their conversation. And its result was that the woman saw her sin and her duty, and turning to the Lord, she found pardon and peace. Therefore, I say that if your conscience convicts you of sin, do not let anybody take your side against God. Your wound does not need a bandage, but a surgical probe. Do not fear the probe. It is the only thing that can save you. Do not seek to hide your sin or veil your eyes from seeing it. Do not be afraid to know the worst, for you must know the very worst, and the sooner you know it, the better. I warn you not to look for some physician to give you a drug to make you feel at ease, for you don't need it. Shun as you would shun death itself all those who would speak smooth things to you and would prophesy that which is not true they would surely ruin your soul. Do not suppose that becoming a Christian will interfere with any of the necessary or appropriate duties of life, or with anything whatsoever to which you should attend. Christianity never interferes with any real duty. So far is this from being the case that a proper attention to your various duties is in fact indispensable to following Jesus. You cannot serve God without this. Additionally, if you want to be saved, you must not attend to anything that would hinder you. It is infinitely important that your soul should be saved. No consideration thrown in your way should be allowed to have the weight of even a straw or a feather. Jesus Christ has illustrated and applied this by several parables, 
especially in the one that compares the kingdom of heaven to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Matthew 13, 45 and 46. In another parable, the kingdom of heaven is said to be like treasure hid in a field, which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Matthew 13, 44. We see that God's Word strongly teaches us that we must be ready to make any sacrifice whatsoever that may be required of us in order to gain the kingdom of heaven. You must not seek Christianity selfishly. You must not make your own salvation or happiness the primary goal. Beware for if you make this your primary goal, you will get a false hope, and you will probably slide along down the pathway of the hypocrite into the deepest hell. Roman numeral 2. What sinners must do to be saved? 1. You must understand what you have to do. It is of the utmost importance that you clearly see this. You need to know that you must return to God, and you must understand what this means. The difficulty between yourself and God is that you have stolen yourself and have run away from His service. You rightfully belong to God. He created you for Himself and therefore he had a perfectly righteous claim to the loyalty of your heart and the service of your life. But you, instead of living to meet his claims, have run away. You have deserted from God's service and have lived to please yourself. Now your duty is to return and give yourself to God. 2. You must return and confess your sins to God. You must confess that you have been completely wrong and that God has been completely right. Go before the Lord and lay open the depth of your sin. Tell Him that you deserve just as much damnation as He has threatened. These confessions are naturally indispensable to your being forgiven. In accordance with this, the Lord says, If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant. Leviticus 26, 41 and 42. Then God can forgive. However, as long as you dispute this point, and will not concede that God is right or admit that you are wrong, He can never forgive you. Moreover, you must confess to anyone if you have hurt them. Is it not a fact that you have hurt some, and likely many, of your fellow men? Have you not slandered your neighbor and said things that you have no right to say? 
Have you not in some instances that you could call to mind if you tried, lied to them, or about them, or covered up or twisted the truth? Have you not been willing for others to have a false impression of you or of your conduct? If so, you must renounce all such iniquity. For he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 Furthermore, not only must you confess your sins to God and to the people you have hurt, but you must also make restitution. You have not taken the position of a repentant sinner before God and man until you have done this. God cannot treat you as a repentant sinner until you have done so. I do not mean by this that God cannot forgive you until you have completed your purpose of restitution by finishing the outward act, for sometimes it may demand time, and in some cases it might not be possible to do. But the purpose must be sincere and thorough before you can be forgiven by God. 3 you must renounce yourself. In this is implied the following. You must renounce your own righteousness, forever abandoning the very idea of having any righteousness in yourself. You must forever let go of the idea of having done any good that could commend you to God, or ever be thought of as a reason for your justification. You must renounce your own will and be always ready to say, not in word only, but in heart, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 You must consent most wholeheartedly that God's will shall be your supreme law. You must renounce your own way and let God have His own way in everything. Never allow yourself to worry and be aggravated by anything whatsoever, for since God's arm extends to all events, you should recognize His hand in all things. Of course, to be troubled about anything at all is to be troubled against God, who has at least permitted that thing to occur as it does. As long, therefore, as you allow yourself to worry, you are not right with God. You must become before God as a little child, subdued and trustful at His feet. Whether the weather is fair or foul, agree that God should have His way. Whether all things go well with you or poorly, as people see it, yet let God do His will, and let it be your part to submit in perfect submission. Until you take this position, you cannot be saved. 4. You must come to Christ. You must accept Christ truly and completely as your Savior, renouncing all thought of depending on anything you have done or can do. You must accept of Christ as your atoning sacrifice 
and as your ever-living mediator before God. Without the least restriction or reserve, you must place yourself under His wing as your Savior. 5. You must seek primarily to please Christ, and not yourself. It is naturally impossible that you would be saved until you enter this attitude of mind. Until you are so well pleased with Christ in all respects as to find your pleasure in doing His will. It is in the nature of things impossible that you could be happy in any other state of mind or unhappy in this, for His will is infinitely good and right. When therefore His will becomes your delight and your will harmonizes entirely with His, then you will be happy for the same reason that He is happy, and you cannot fail to be happy any more than Jesus Christ can. Becoming supremely happy in God's will is essentially the idea of salvation. In this state of mind, you are saved. Out of it, you cannot be. It has often struck my mind with great force that many who profess to be Christian are severely and completely mistaken on this point. Their real feeling is that Christ's service is an iron collar, an unbearably hard yoke. Therefore, they labor exceedingly to throw off some of this burden. They try to make it seem that Christ does not require much, if any, self-denial, or much, if any, deviation from the course of worldliness and sin. Oh, if they could only get the standard of Christian duty quite down to a level with the ways and customs of this world! How much easier, then, they think, it would be to live a Christian life and wear Christ's yoke. In their view, taking Christ's yoke as it really is becomes an iron collar. Doing the will of Christ instead of their own is a hard business. If doing Christ's will is true religion, and who can doubt it, then in their mind even a little of it will cause them to be very miserable. Let me ask those who groan under the idea that they must be religious, who consider it extremely difficult, but they must do so, how much religion of this kind would it take to make hell? Surely not much. When it gives you no joy to do God's will, yet you are confined to doing His will as the only way to be saved, and are thereby perpetually forced into doing what you hate as the only means of escaping hell, would not this be itself a hell? Can you not see that in this state of mind you are not and cannot be saved? To be saved, you must come into a state of mind in which you will ask no greater joy than to do God's will. This alone will forever be enough to fill your cup to overflowing. 6. You must have complete trust in Christ, or you cannot be saved. 
You must absolutely believe in Him. You must believe all His words of promise. They were given to you to be believed, and unless you believe them, they can do you no good at all. Not only will the promises not help you if you do not exercise faith in them, but they will only increase your sin of unbelief. God wants to be believed when He speaks in love to lost sinners. He gave them these exceeding great and precious promises, that they by faith in them might escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. 2 Peter 1.4 But thousands of people who profess the Christian religion do not know how to use these promises. And as to them or any profitable use they make, the promises might as well have been written on the sands of the sea. Sinners, too, will go down to hell in endless multitudes unless they believe and take hold of God by faith in His promise. His awful wrath is out against them. He says, I will go through them and will burn them up together, or let them take hold of my strength, that they may make peace with me, and they will make peace with me. Let him stir himself up and take hold of my arm, which is strong to save, and then he may make peace with me. Do you ask how to take hold? By faith. Yes, by faith. Believe his words and take hold. Take hold of his strong arm and swing right out over hell and don't be afraid any more than if there were no hell. But you say, I do believe, and yet I am not saved. No, you don't believe. A woman said to me, I believe, I know I do, and yet here I am in my sins. No, I said, you don't. Do you have as much confidence in God as you would have in me if I had promised you a dollar? Do you ever pray to God? If so, do you come with the same confidence that you would have if you came to me to ask for a promised dollar? Until you have as much faith in God as this, and more, until you have more confidence in God than you would have in 10,000 people, your faith does not honor God and you cannot hope to please Him. You must say, let God be true, though every man be a liar. Romans 3, 4. But you say, I am a sinner, and how can I believe? I know you are a sinner, and so are all people to whom God has given these promises. You say, but I am a great sinner. Well, it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.15. So, you do not need to despair.
7. You must forsake all that you have, or you cannot be Christ's disciple. There must be absolute and total self-denial. I do not mean by this that you are never to eat again, or never again to clothe yourself, or never again to enjoy the society of your friends, but that you should cease entirely from using any of these enjoyments selfishly. You must no longer think to own yourself, including your time, your possessions, or anything you have ever called your own. You must consider all these things as God's and not yours. You are to forsake all that you have in the sense of laying all upon God's altar to be devoted supremely and only to His service. When you come back to God for pardon and salvation, lay all that you have at His feet. Come with your body to offer it as a living sacrifice upon His altar. Come with your soul and all its powers and yield them in willing consecration to your God and Savior. Come, bring them all along. Bring everything, body, soul, intellect, thought, possessions, all without reserve. Do you ask if you must bring them all? Yes, all, absolutely all. Do not keep back anything. Don't sin against your own soul like Ananias and Sapphira by keeping back a part. Acts 5, 1-11 But renounce your own claim to everything and recognize God's right to all. Say, Lord, these things are not mine. I had stolen them, but they were never mine. They were always yours. I will have them no longer. Lord, these things are all yours, now and forever. Now, Lord, what is your will for me? I have no business of my own to do. I am entirely yours to do your will. What work do you have for me to do? In this spirit, you must renounce the world, the flesh, and Satan. Your fellowship is from now on to be with Christ and not with those objects. You are to live for Christ and not for the world, the flesh, or the devil. 8. You must believe the record that God has given of His Son. He who does not believe does not receive the record. He does not affirm that God is true. This is the record, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 1 John 5:11. The condition of your having it is that you believe the record, and of course that you act accordingly. Suppose there is a poor man living next door to you, and he gets a letter in the mail stating that a rich man has died and has left him one million dollars. And the cashier of a neighboring bank tells him that he has received the amount on deposit for him, 
and they are holding it for him at the bank until he lets them know what he wants them to do with it. The poor man says, I can't believe the record. I can't believe there ever was any such rich man. I can't believe there is a million dollars for me. Therefore, he must live and die as poor as Lazarus because he won't believe the record. Notice that this is just how it is with the unbelieving sinner. God has given you eternal life, and it waits for you, but you don't get it because you will not believe, and therefore you will not accept into your possession what is there for you. Maybe you say that you must have some feeling before you can believe, that you cannot believe until you have the feeling. The poor man might say the same thing. How can I believe that the one million dollars is mine? I do not have even a penny of it now. I am as poor as ever. Yes, you are poor because you will not believe. If you would believe, you could go and buy out every store in this county. Still you cry, I am as poor as ever, I can't believe it. See my poor worn clothes? I was never more ragged in my life. I do not have even a fragment of the feeling and comforts of a rich man. In the same way, the sinner says that he cannot believe until he gets the inward experience. He must wait to have some of the feeling of a saved sinner before he can believe the record and take hold of the salvation. That is ridiculous enough. This is similar to the poor man who must wait to get his new clothes and fine house before he can believe the account and withdraw his money. Of course, he dooms himself to everlasting poverty, even though mountains of gold were all his own. Sinner, you must understand this. Why should you be lost when eternal life is bought and offered to you by the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you not believe the record and withdraw what is waiting for you at once? For mercy's sake, understand this, and do not lose heaven by your own foolishness. I must conclude by saying that if you want to be saved, you must accept a prepared salvation, one that is already prepared, complete, and present. You must be willing to give up all your sins and to be saved from them all now and from now on. Until you consent to this, you cannot be saved at all. Many people would be willing to be saved in heaven if they could hold on to some sins while on earth, or rather, they think that they would like heaven on such terms. The fact is, though, that they would dislike a pure heart and a holy life in heaven just as much as they do on earth. 
they entirely deceive themselves in thinking that they are ready or even willing to go to such a heaven as the one that God has prepared for his people. There can be no heaven except for those who accept the salvation from all sin in this world. They must take the gospel as a system that allows no compromise with sin, that aspires to full deliverance from sin even now, and makes provision accordingly. Any other gospel is not the true one, and to accept of Christ's gospel in any other sense is not to accept it at all. Its first and last condition is an affirmed and eternal renunciation of all sin. Remarks 1. Paul did not give the same answer to this question that a consistent universalist would give. The latter would say, You are to be saved by being first punished according to your sin. All people must expect to be punished all that their sins deserve. But Paul did not answer in this way. He would have been a miserable comforter if he had said, You must all be punished according to the letter of the law you have broken. This could hardly have been called good news. Nor did Paul give the universalist's answer and say, do not concern yourself about this matter of being saved. All people are sure enough of being saved without any particular anxiety about it. No, for Paul understood and did not refrain from expressing the necessity of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the condition of being saved. 2. Take care that you do not sin willfully after having understood the truth concerning the way of salvation. Your danger of this is great and is precisely in proportion as you see your duty clearly. The most terrible damnation will fall on the head of those who knew their duty, but who did not do it. When, therefore, you are told plainly and truly what your duty is, be on your guard, so that you do not let salvation slip out of your hands. It may never come as near your reach again. 3. Do not wait even to go home before you obey God. Make up your mind now at once to deal with the offers of salvation. Why not? Are they not most reasonable? 4. Let your mind act upon this great proposal. Embrace it just as you would any other important proposition. God lays the proposition before you. You hear it explained, and you understand it. The next and only remaining step is to embrace it with all your heart. Just as any other great question, we may suppose it is a question of life or death, might come before a community, 
the case is fully stated, the conditions are explained, and then the argument is made. Will you consent? Will you agree to meet these conditions? Do you wholeheartedly embrace the proposition? Now all this would be understandable. This is how it is in the case of the sinner. You understand the proposition. You know the conditions of salvation. You understand the contract into which you are to enter with your God and Savior. You agree to give your all to God, to lay yourself upon His altar, to be used up there, however He desires to use you. The only remaining question is, will you consent to this at once? Will you consent to full and everlasting consecration with all your heart? 5. The jailer made no excuse. When he knew his duty, he yielded in a moment. Paul told him what to do, and he did it. He might possibly have heard something about Paul's preaching before this night, but probably not much. But now he hears for his life. How often have I been struck with this case? He was a sinful-minded heathen. He had heard, we must suppose, a great deal of negative talk about these apostles. But despite that, he went to them for truth. Hearing the truth, he is convinced, and being convinced, he surrenders at once. Paul uttered a single sentence, and the jailer received it and embraced it, and it was done. Now, sinner, you know and admit all this truth, and yet as infinitely strange as it is, you will not in a moment believe and embrace it with all your heart. Will not Sodom and Gomorrah rise up against you in the judgment and condemn you? How could you bear to see that heathen jailer on that dreadful day and stand rebuked by his example there? 6. It is remarkable that Paul said nothing about the jailer needing any help in order to believe and repent. He did not even mention the work of the Spirit or allude to the jailer's need of it. It should be noticed, though, that Paul gave the jailer precisely those instructions that would most effectively secure the Spirit's aid and promote his action. 7. The jailer seems to have made no delay at all, waiting for no future or better time but he surrendered and embraced the conditions as soon as they were presented to him. No sooner was the proposition made than he seized upon it. I was once preaching in a village in New York, and a lawyer sat before me who had been greatly offended by the gospel. That day, though, I noticed that he sat with fixed eye and open mouth, leaning forward, as if he would seize each word as it came. I was explaining and simplifying the gospel, 
and when I stated just how the gospel was offered to people, he said to me afterward, I snatched at it. I put out my hand, adapting the action to the thought, and I seized it, and it became mine. This was how it was in my own situation while I was in the woods praying. After I had burst away from the fear of man and began to give room to the achings of my heart, this passage fell upon me. Ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29.13 For the first time I found that I believed a passage in the Bible. I had supposed that I had believed it before, but surely never before as I did now. I said to myself, This is the word of the everlasting God. My God, I take you at your word. You say that I will find you when I search for you with all my heart. And now, Lord, I know that I do search for you with all my heart. True enough. I did find the Lord. Never in all my life was I more certain of anything than I was now, that I had found the Lord. This is the very idea of His promises. They were made to be believed, to be laid hold of as God's own words, and to be acted upon as if they actually meant just what they say. When God says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, Isaiah 45.22, He wants us to look unto Him as if He really had salvation in His hands to give, and also a heart to give it, for He does. The true spirit of faith is well expressed by the psalmist. When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Psalm 27, 8. This is the way. Let your heart at once respond to the blessed words of invitation and of promise. But you say that you are not a Christian. You never will be until you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you never become a Christian, the reason will be because you do not and will not believe the gospel and embrace it with all your heart. The promises were made to be believed, and they belong to anyone who will believe them. They reach forth their precious words to all, and whoever will take them as his own. Now will you believe that the Father has given you eternal life? This is the fact declared. Will you believe it? You have now been told what you must not do and what you must do to be saved. Are you prepared to act? Do you say, I am ready to renounce my own desires and from now on seek no other pleasure than to please God? Can you forsake everything else for the sake of this? Sinner, do you want to please God? 
or will you choose to please yourself? Are you willing now to please God and to begin by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation? Will you be as simple-hearted as the jailer was? And will you act as promptly? Make your decision now. I do not want you to delay, or you might start talking about something else and let these words of life and this precious opportunity to grasp and offered salvation slip by you. Whom do you suppose I am now addressing? I am speaking to every unrepentant sinner. I call heaven and earth to record that I have set the gospel before you today. Deuteronomy 30.19 Will you take it? Is it not reasonable for you to decide at once? Are you ready now to say before high heaven and before those around you, I will renounce myself and yield to God? I am the Lord's, and let all people and angels bear me witness that I am forevermore the Lord's. Sinner, the infinite God waits for your assent.